This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. You'll find more information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website, churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Well, welcome, dear Church Society podcast listener. My name is Chris Moore, and I work for Church Society as Director for Wider Church Engagement. And this podcast is a little different from our normal fare. In recent months, you'll have noticed that an alliance has been formed in response to the Bishop's plans on LLF. This is an alliance of not only differing groups of evangelicals, but also of wider groups such as traditional Anglo-Catholics, groups who, to be honest, we've not worked with in the past, groups with whom we disagree on several matters. So I thought it might be interesting for our members to hear from some of these other groups, other members of the alliance. Why? Well, to help us understand where we agree and where we disagree. Where are their points of unity and what are our differences? And I hope that over the next few months, we will be able to have interviews with a number of people from different parts of the Alliance. But I thought it might be good to start with a group with whom we have no track record of working together, the Anglo-Catholics. So what follows is an interview with a friend of mine, the Reverend Matthew Cashmore. He is an unashamed and unabashed Anglo-Catholic and proud Welshman. Do we agree on some things? Yes. Do we disagree on other things? Yes. This is not, however, a debate, but an opportunity for you to get to know someone from this part of this new alliance. To let him speak for himself. So, Matthew... Is that fair, do you think, that we are finding a a greater sense of unity between at least some evangelicals and some Anglo-Catholics at the moment around this issue, but also issues such as the ordination of women as well? I think think you're right, and I think we're increasingly seeing it. I think there's a a reaction from both those wings of the church towards um, some of the kind of uh, the liberal centre, if you like, the gooey liberal centre of the church, and I've always, I've always liked that picture. And people have said to me, you know, you've got evangelical uh, down the one side, and you've got the Catholics up the other side, and then in the middle, you've got, you've got those liberals who try to walk that li- that that middle path. But that middle path has become so soggy and 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 so heavy that it's kind of pulled that spectrum down and now we suddenly find the evangelicals and the catholics at the top end of the horseshoe coming together and noticing each other and going oh oh you're doing some really good stuff uh oh, oh you believe this as well and, and oh and we believe that oh well maybe there's some stuff we can do together and um we, we should thank our, our soft liberal center for that if nothing else for exposing some unity. <laughs> but I think it's fair to say, um, Matthew, though, that we, in the same way that you can't say evangelical and then understand precisely who somebody might be, because frankly, now the range of people who would call themselves evangelical is very broad, that there's a similar sort of breadth within even, uh, sorry, within Anglo-Catholicism as well, between um I suppose, different understandings of quite what the Catholic 
in Anglo-Catholic might mean. Is it Catholic in what you might say uh, a more Roman Catholic way? Or is it Catholic in a way that's looking back to the Catholic heritage of the Church of England uh, in this nation? So are we a sort of a branch uh, of Roman Catholicism in some way, or are we a Catholic tradition in our own distinctive right as the English Church in this nation, which, of course, did exist before Augustine of Canterbury came here? Mm, mm. I think I think that's fair. It's it's not easy to categorise what an Anglo-Catholic is. Do you define an Anglo-Catholic by the way that they worship? Do you define an Anglo-Catholic based on their understandings of theological engagement within within the church? And I think there are probably as many views of that as there are Anglo-Catholic priests. But essentially, we chart what an Anglo-Catholic is through the movement, the Oxford movement, mm. uh, and how it started. We particularly look at Percy Diemer, uh, whose view of lace, of course, was uh, famously uh, a very the only place for laces in my lady's boudoir was his uh, <laughs> were, were his words, which is about right. And then you've got Henry Newman, a very very different perspective, but both part of that same movement, the origins of the Oxford movement in the mid-19th century. And then, of course, as we move into the early 20th century, and we see lots of that becoming, um, we see the ritualists uh, and the shift into what we would call very, very, very ritualistic worship. And it, so it all gets caught up in that. And, and, and Anglo-Catholics sit right across that spectrum. So you have people who will wear lace from, uh, the, the, the phrases from the tits down, <laughs> and um, we'll have every candle possible to light and we'll have incense and, and there'll be, uh, it'll be, it's it's almost charismatic in its exuberance. It, it's attempting to engage all senses and create a transcendent uh, experience that lifts mm. you to God. Um, and that is very charismatic in its, in its outworkings. And then you can have very, very, low Anglo-Catholics, much more Percy Diemer, far more restrained. It's far more about the Catholic understanding of unity, of us being together, of us making decisions as Christians together. Uh, and it's it's far less about um, whether or not you're a, you're a papist or whether or not you're wearing lace it's, and, 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 and everything in between. It's very difficult to tie it down. But broadly speaking, um, Anglo-Catholics inhabit a place of theological unity with the rest of the church the holy catholic and apostolic church that's that's really where we get to it's about saying we as uh, individual christians and even we as bits of that one holy catholic and apostolic church cannot make decisions on our own unless we all move together and that's about church councils and that's about um it's about saying we're not arrogant enough to think that we can make this decision. We're certainly not arrogant enough to think that the Holy Spirit only appears to work in this tiny bit of the Western Church whilst ignoring the entirety of the rest of the worldwide church. So that that's sort of the Catholic, that Anglo-Catholic, would, would have that worldwide church perspective as well. But it, it's fair to say as well, though, I would suggest that you, you find that even within um, what might be called Anglo-Catholics, you have some who would be of a more liberal persuasion on some issues as well. I mean, or maybe I'm misunderstanding. I'm, I'm thinking of organisations such as the Society of Catholic Priests who've got the word Catholic in the title 
and would, as my understanding, be in favour of, say, the ordination of women. But yet, would they fit within that wider bracket of Anglo-Catholic as well? Because clearly, they wouldn't be seeking to come under a flying bishop because of their views wouldn't require it. So it's I've sometimes you wonder how broad, in the same way that you find the same with evangelicalism, that the word sometimes gets used in parties you wouldn't naturally think it would be. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think, um, and that's where you start to see language around conservative Anglo-Catholics or traditionists or orthodox. And, and as soon as you start applying those kinds of labels, people who've adopted those labels uh, will will then get upset about, you know, being, what do you mean, how do you, how can you possibly describe yourself as an orthodox Anglo-Catholic because you hold that uh, women can't be ordained to the sacred priesthood, that's not orthodox because what you're saying is that I'm not orthodox because I don't hold that. To, well, well, actually, yes, that is exactly what I'm saying because you have taken that label of Anglo-Catholic from uh, those of us who, who believe and hold to these things. And so then it ends up just being an argument about what a label means. And ultimately, I think it's those labels are becoming less and less helpful. And as those labels become less and less helpful, and as we 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 identify using those labels less and less, I think that's helping the unity between evangelicals who have what I would describe as sound, sound theology and Catholics who I would describe as having sound theology are, are actually seeing that unity together because we're kind of seeing through those labels for the first time. We no longer have a... Uh, an Anglo-Catholic parish one side of Hamstead Heath and an evangelical parish on the other side of Hamstead Heath and they meet in the middle and, and beat each other up. That 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 That's not how the church operates yeah. anymore under those banners. And that's certainly been the experience in Synod. I mean, the word orthodox has been causes equal upset by those who would turn themselves as evangelical and saying, well, we're inclusive, but we don't like the fact that you're calling yourself Orthodox. So that is interesting that we're getting the same debates over the ownership of words on both Anglo-Catholic and also uh, evangelical wings. But nonetheless, well, and that I goes found it ways. interesting. On to... Sorry, go on. Yeah, I was going to say that goes both ways, doesn't it? Because the the liberals get upset uh, when the conservatives use the words words like orthodox and saying, "Well, you're saying that I'm not orthodox." But the conservatives mm. will get upset when the liberals use words like conservative. So when Marcus Walker described himself as conservative at synod, that caused quite a stir because conservative Catholics, uh, Anglo Catholics, went, "You're not a conservative Anglo Catholic at all." I mean, he's a conservative with a big C, of course. But that's a, a, a so the, that upset about who owns what label um, isn't exclusively the upset is not exclusively of the liberals it's certainly of the conservatives as well well this is the problem with labels generally isn't it and and as you're saying when we start to look beyond the labels there does seem to be a lot more that a lot more points of contact i suppose you'd say than perhaps we would have thought in 20 30 years ago and i was in the well, it, it was good to be there, it was, but unexpected situation of being in a prayer meeting uh, before a particular session, a general synod up in York, and a prayer meeting I was leading, it was the 1990 group, which would be, I suppose you'd call the conservative evangelical group on general synod, and yet we had a joint prayer meeting with the, the Catholic group on synod to pray for the business coming up and to recognise the fact that we have been working together. So... I think I was put up to lead it because it was understood that I might know now how not to upset 
the Anglo-Catholics who are present so that they would run screaming through the window, jump in the lake that there is at Synod there. But, it's, but there's, there we go. There's, that's really interesting, is it? Because the, the, the thing that you've talked about that's brought unity there is praying together. Because I think that is one of the points of unity, is that both what you might describe as conservative Anglo-Catholics and evangelicals, and, and however we want to term um, conservative evangelicals within the New World and the, and the splits that we're seeing around LLF and so forth, what we all believe is that when we pray, Jesus shows up. Uh, there's there's a point of unity. Jesus shows up, um, and we really believe that, and we all really believe that. So we all pray together. That point of contact, that point of unity, is way more important um, than say whether or not we think lace is all right on a Sunday afternoon, or even a Sunday morning. You can you can do what you want in the afternoon, Matthew. <laughs> but there's been, I mean, we, there's the obvious points of contact within at least the conservative wing of um, evangelicalism and Anglo-Catholics over the ordination of women. But there's a broader point of contact as well about issues of human sexuality, which have come up. And it's been interesting to me to see that both sides, when attacking this, maybe with a different emphasis, but nonetheless are both talking about the importance of Scripture in defining the faith for us. But also there is an importance as to how that scripture has been handed down and interpreted in the traditions of the church as well. So it would be a caricature to say that the evangelicals lead with scripture and then follow up with the traditions of the church. And it's the other way around for Anglo-Catholics. But nonetheless, both sides are taking seriously this. You know, we within the evangelical wing will be looking back to the prayer book, looking back to the articles, looking back to what Augustine might say. And yes, we might want to say that scripture is the norming norm, to use the phrase, you know, that's the, the rod, the canon, which we test things against. But it's been interesting to see that there has been perhaps less of an allergic reaction to tradition than could have been the, uh, a caricature of evangelicalism and uh, more of a common ground on that. I, I, I think that's always been a misunderstanding of evangelicals about Anglo-Catholics. Um, it, it, that, that we do not value scripture and we do not engage with scripture. I mean, that's I, I think that's a huge misunderstanding. I think it's fair to say that we would we interrogate scripture through tradition. So I think it would be fair mm. to say that we will pick up the church fathers and read through the church fathers uh, and, and, and use that lens of tradition to interrogate scripture. Um, but you can't read the church fathers you can't read church tradition without having an exceptionally good understanding of scripture that is the point that is why you're engaging with the tradition in order to better understand scripture it's it's just a different way of engaging um it's uh, I, I was always surprised kind of how dismissive evangelicals are of anglo-catholics interrogation of scripture because we read so much scripture just in our daily offices, uh, the office of the readings. And, and so it's just we are soaked in scripture every single day. And I've mm. loved opening that up for evangelicals uh, uh, and, um, but, and and seeing that that misapprehension kind of being lifted. Hmm. No, I think that certainly is certainly is the case. And as you say, if you're committed to the office, you are going to be committed scripture and i think as well we've seen within evangelicalism generally more of a focus on on the fathers in recent years uh, and a sense of trying to say where are we 
grounding our understandings. Uh, it's interesting that the ancient commentary series on Scripture, for instance, is published by IVP, an evangelical publishing house. So there is more work, it seems to be going on on that issue now. And it, it's maybe a growing point of contact that uh, we have with each other is that you are now finding you've got evangelicals who are seriously researching Augustine or, you know, doctoral level or in a way they may not have done before. And that maybe evangelicalism goes that, you know, beyond Luther or beyond Ryle or other people. But there is a tradition there which we can we can share. But I think it is also sorry, go on. Mark. I was going to say you touched on liturgy there. And I think that's a really big part of of and being Anglo-Catholic is that is that understanding of daily interaction with scripture and with prayer upon which we we use we, we we base that in liturgy that's that's the scaffold that allows us to interrogate that um and I think that you can look at liturgy and you can just say well that's just getting in the way that's you should just be picking up your bible and reading it just gets in the way you should just be praying liturgy just gets in the way but for Anglo-Catholics it gives us a scaffold to ensure that we are embracing the full breadth of scripture uh, and that we are really going deep into scripture that's the tool that is used to enable that so that we don't end up just reading the bits of scripture that we like because of the liturgy, because of the lectionary, we have to interrogate it properly. Um, it's a way of, of guaranteeing that we're interrogating scripture properly. It's a way of guaranteeing that we're going deep into prayer. It's a way of guaranteeing that we are trying to speak to and hear from God every day. That's that's the way that we try to do that, is as a sign of dedication to listening to God and discerning where the Holy Spirit is sending us, rather than something that is getting in the way. Hmm. So if we've got a, a shared, I mean, clearly we've got a shared tradition, but if, if we've got a, a shared uh, use of and interpretation and uh, reliance upon Scripture, if we have a shared understanding that we are part of this Church of England together, that we have our liturgy, I mean, within the prayer book and, and more widely, I suppose, in recent years, as a binding factor. There are also some points of distinction. And I think these points of distinction can also be points of misunderstanding. So I thought, washed or here, that if I, if I say some uh, trigger words to you <laughs> that will get some of our evangelical brethren quaking, uh, and perhaps you might, uh, just to allow you to put your point of view on them, why they're useful, why they're part of, say, a devotional practice, then, again, it might just help people to understand quite what's going on. So if I was to say rosaries to you, and uh, say, explain yourself. What might you say? I love the rosary, I, I, as as you know, and I've I've made videos about how to pray the rosary, and I've written a little book on how to do it, and all the rest of it. Um, I find it uh, personally a devotional tool, and that's all a rosary is. It's a tool that enables devotion uh, and enables space to listen to God. Because I am weak, that's the bottom mm -hmm. line. I use the rosary because I am weak, and uh, unless uh, I, I know damn well that as good as my discipline is, uh, if I sit to pray, uh, my mind wanders. Now, that's on me. That's that's my failure. That's my weakness. But if I pick up the rosary, the tactile nature of it, the structure of it, um, the, the, the ability for me to know that once I pick up the rosary, I have 20 minutes of prayer ahead of me. 
nothing else can interfere with it it creates that 20 minute space now as long as as long as you treat a rosary in that way i don't think that gets in the way of of anything else it's just a tool the issue with the rosary is the hail mary Let's be honest. It's it's not the it's not the having some we'll beads. We'll come back to Mary in a minute. <laughs> yeah, but the issue isn't the beads. The issue isn't the repetitive nature of the prayer per se. It's a bit of that. Um, the the issue is the Hail Mary. If I was sitting there and saying the Our Father one hundred and fifty times, there would be less, I think, of a backlash against rosaries than there is around the Hail Mary. And so you have to deal with the Marian theology, which we we will come back to. But uh, you have uh, in the rosary, there are five mysteries, five sets of mysteries, all scripture. Uh, and you sit there, you pray the rosary, you hit a mystery in each rosary. So you, you pray the 10 Hail Marys, you pray the glory be, uh, you hit the mystery, you interrogate scripture, you dwell in that scripture, you listen to what God is saying, you pray your intention. Then you say in our father, then another 10 Hail Marys, then the glory be. Then you sit in another piece of scripture. You dwell, you listen, you pray another. I mean, what is wrong with that? What is wrong with saying a prayer, interrogating and dwelling in scripture, listening to what God is saying to you and praying? That's what a rosary enables. Um, I, I appreciate that it can be seen in different ways, but ultimately that's what the rosary is about. And, and on the, you said something about the, obviously you're repeating the prayers between the the dwelling on the various aspects of scripture. Uh, is there anything about the repetitive nature of it that plays a role? Are you finding that's helping you to focus your mind? Um, is there a, why, why is the repeat, repeating the prayer the 10 times uh, before you get to the depending on scripture why is that of use would you think uh, for, for me it, it works in two ways in, in the first sense it's like a palate cleanser uh it, it's it's a glass of water between prayers and between scripture mm. it, it kind of it, it it takes you out of the one piece of scripture and, and kind of clears the plate ready for the next piece of scripture so that, that that's that's one way of of looking at it and certainly that's the way it works for, for me, because it allows me to come out of that piece of scripture I've just been thinking of, that piece of prayer I've been thinking of, and then it allows me to drop into the next one. So it provides that little bit of space, that palate cleansing. The other thing that it allows is that when you are weak and your discipline is not great and you can't clear the world away, you can't focus on your prayer, that repetitive prayer kicks the world out. It just sends it flying so that then when you hit the scripture, you're focused. You're in the right place to hear what God is saying. That's the point of the repetitive nature of the prayer. Thanks. And you you mentioned the Hail Mary, and I think the the role of Mary between in both the devotional life and also the doctrinal understanding of the role of Mary, co-redemptrix or whatever words you might want to use within salvation, again, would be a, a point of contrast and a, a point possibly of misunderstanding. Possibly the understanding is entirely correct, but it'd be interesting to hear your take on the role of Mary within the devotional life and the doctrinal life within Anglo-Catholicism. Yeah, I, I think this is a genuine point of difference. Uh, I, I think there's some misunderstanding, but I do think there is a genuine point of theological difference going on here, and that's okay. Um, the misunderstanding, of course, is that old um, 
that old misunderstanding that Catholics worship Mary. That's not what's going on. Although, in, in its in if you take it too far, and, and let's be honest, mm. some Anglo-Catholics do, and certainly some Roman Catholics do. If you take it too far, that is exactly what it becomes, and that is idolatry, and that isn't okay. So, but that's not where we start. Where we start with Mary, uh, and this is why she's so important to Anglo-Catholics is that she is the person who understood best Jesus as both man and God. So at the very, very basic level, she is about the only person in history, other than Joseph, who understood that dual nature of of Jesus um, uh, right the way through his life, how that manifested when he was a child uh, in, in that incarnation, how he was as he, he stepped into that, that public life uh, after baptism and called us to repentance. Mary understands that. So the ability to look at Mary and place yourself in her shoes in attempting to understand Jesus at the most basic level is a good and worthwhile thing to do. That's the basic level. On top of that, then, we start to think about the way that Mary reacted to God's call on her life, be it unto me according to thy word. So now we have the next level of the way that we look at Mary and how we live our lives, be it unto me according to thy word. Here's another example of how we can live our lives at Christians. Now we've taken a, a one little step up. Not only is she a role model, but now she's giving us an example of exactly what it is we should do. Then you start getting into the more complex, and I think it's fair to say more recent theological kind of understanding around Mary. So if we if we take it uh, into the doctrinal stuff around uh, Theotokos, mother of God, that's something that we all kind of can get into. Uh, but once we start getting into redemptric stuff, we're into quite dangerous mm territory i think and i would suggest that the vast majority of anglo-catholics certainly don't believe that so the the role would be an inspirational role in the terms of role model of example yeah in, and, and in those terms I think at the simplest level, yes, what we have then is also the middle model where we're going to have theological, mis uh, not misunderstanding, but theological disagreement, which is we believe that Mary continues to pray for us and continues to have an active part mm. in our relationship with God. So she prays for us in the same way that all of the saints pray for us. Uh, and that would that would be with a theological, and that's most, you see that most cleanly at things like Walsingham, we, we have uh, the rosary procession at the National Pilgrimage and you have the uh, weaponized rosary where the Anglo-Catholics are shouting, Hail Mary, follow grace at the top of their voices and the Protestants are shouting, she's dead! Um, as if that's some sort of revelation to all the Catholics coming up the street. We go, we know! <laughs> she's still <laughs> praying for us. Uh, and that that's the point of theological difference but you know what that's okay isn't it that's that's not so what <laughs> so the role so i mean that just touches something else which is interesting as well so um the role of the saints now within um within the Christian life. So those who have gone before us, those who have died, we, we are, obviously, we would say that those who have died with their faith in Christ are, are in glory. Uh, but I think another point of difference would be between uh, 
a Protestant under a, a, a Protestant evangelical understanding that the saints are there and and they're there, but within Anglo Catholicism, I would. My understanding is there's also that sense that the saints are praying with us now. And also, and tell me if I've gone too far on this, that there's a sense that we ask them to pray in the same way that we'd ask our sister or our house group leader or whatever it is to pray for us in that way. So there's a, a stronger connection between, I don't want to say living and dead, but because those are in Christ are alive in Christ. But you know what I mean? Those who have died and those who haven't. Would that be fair? I, I think that's absolutely fair, and I think I think that is a uh, I think that's a vitally important thing for Anglo Catholics that the saints who have gone before us are still a very active part of our journeys in faith. Um, and who better to and, and if we come back to Mary, who better to uh, ask to pray for you than Jesus' mum? Let's be honest. If you go with this start, you know, one of my favourite cartoons. Um, one of my favourite cartoons is um, uh, the line of people at the gates and, uh, you know, trying to get in. The big book is there at the pearly gates. And then the gates are shut and he's going through the book. Um, and, and, you know, St. Peter, all, all that's going on. And then in the background, in the clouds, you can see Mary and she's thrown her rosary over the side and people are climbing up the rosary to get into heaven. Now, that's redemptric stuff. It's not right. We don't <laughs> we don't think that's right. But it is very, very funny. So the, the, the joke goes that uh, Hope Hatton, who refounded uh, Walsingham and, and the shrine at Walsingham, uh, when he dies... Uh, he goes to heaven and uh, St. Peter's there and he's looking in the book before he goes through the gates. And he said, oh, I can't see you. You're not in the book. And Hope Patton says, oh, well, it, look under Patton because it's not Hope Patton. It's not. It's look under Patton. No, it's not me. I couldn't find him in the book. And she so said, I'm ever so sorry. St. Peter says, you'll have to go over to that door over there. Be careful. There's some steep steps on the other side of it. And the handle's a bit warm. So Hope Patton is very dejected as he walks across, you know, the foyer in front of the pearly gates towards this door to eternal damnation. And there's Jesus walking across the foyer and he's walking across the fire with uh, with with Bonhoeffer correcting his theology. And uh, he, he spots Hope Patton and he says, Peter, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is do you not know who this is? And St. Peter says, he's not in the book. Lord, he's not in the book. He can't come in. And Hope Patton says, oh, for goodness sake, let him in. He's one of mum's friends. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, if I if I'm going to carry on down this line of questions to uh, to Ryle, if you excuse the pun, Ryle, um, good conservative evangelicals, the mass. What what what's going on at communion? What's what's how what role does because there's obviously a tradition of regular daily communion uh, within. Anglo-Catholicism, uh, whereas in evangelicalism, it's a once a week at best and maybe once a month. So what role would, would communion or the mass pay within um, your devotional and spiritual life as well? well I think there's, there's probably two ways of looking at it. The first is that Jesus shows up. You know, I, I think if, if there's nothing else we can agree on, we will say that at the Eucharist, at mass, Jesus shows up. Um, uh, and in the Eucharist, in the Mass, we are made stronger in Christ so that we can be sent out so that others may know him. That's the that's that's what's going on at, at Mass in its 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 most basic mm. form. And I think we can probably all agree on that, right? I don't think that's that's contentious in any way. And so if that's the case, why wouldn't you do it every day? 
So, so a bishop uh, I've heard say about the, um, you may well know who it is, but saying, well, you know, is it like having chips every day and chips aren't special anymore because communion is so special, we should only have it infrequently um, and it loses some of its specialness. Jesus is so good for you, you should only have him every now and again. Absolutely. It's too rich fair. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what, what, a, what a ludicrous. But the other side of that, if we go back to the rosary, is it's about my weakness as a human being. Mm. I am weak. So by going to Mass every day, by going to the Eucharist every day, by experiencing Jesus showing up and being fed by him in the Eucharist to be sent out to make him known, then I am being made stronger every day. So there's there's an element mm. of discipline around weakness in in attending. Also, though, what else do we do in the Eucharist? What what, what do we do? We sit together. We ask for repentance of us. We ask for forgiveness of our sins. We repent. We read scripture together. We pray together, and then we get sent out to make Jesus known in the world. I mean, and we do that every single day. That to me seems very evangelical. Those people who know me and, and can picture me know that I am a large man. Hmm. Imagine if I uh, if if I'm trying to lose weight and, and I'm losing weight. I'm doing very I'm very happy with how I'm losing. But imagine that I thought to myself, "Well, going to the gym is such a good thing that I should probably only do it once a week or once a month because it is such a good thing." Actually, what I need to do is go to the gym every single day, and that's Damn. that's what the mass is. It is a place for sinners. It is not a place for the redeemed. So if, so if I was going to characterise then, I'm, I'm, I'm heading in, I'm drawing into an end. If I was to categorise then, um, perhaps the main differences is that an Anglo-Catholic um, would look at an evangelical and say, you don't believe enough. And an evangelical would look at an Anglo-Catholic and say, you believe too much. But our starting point is the same. Um, but we are heading off in certain trajectories which are slightly different is that fair uh, i'm not sure i would put it quite as starkly as that i would say our desire to know jesus is the same yes okay yeah. we are driven by the same desire to know jesus and that desire and that passion is i think increasingly what's drawing us together that desire to know Jesus and combined with an expectation that Jesus will show up and make a difference in our lives is what draws us together. And because we start there rather than what separates us, we can then start to appreciate the way the people go in order to deepen that relationship, to discover more about Jesus. There is a mutual respect in, in mm -hmm. the journey, even if it's not the way that you would go. So if we find ourselves in a situation where, I don't know, in a deanery or a diocese or something, or even between parishes that we're working together, the conversation to have is not the one that I've just put you through, what on earth's going on with the Mass. The conversation is to say, tell me, tell me why you follow Jesus and we'll be on common ground. What's your hope in Christ and we're on common ground? What's your, uh, what's, what do you desire to gain from your reading of the Scriptures? We're on common ground. What's your desire for those around you, that they come to know Christ, we're on common ground? So if we were to focus more upon Christ as we work together in various settings, then we may find that we've got a deeper sense of unity than we perhaps historically have thought to be the case.
Yeah, I, I think you're right. And it, it, I've always found it surprising that the, the gulf exists historically between evangelicals and Anglo-Catholics, because ultimately both groups were trying to do the same thing, which was stem a huge loss of faith within the country uh, in that, in, you know, the, the 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 early and the mid part of the 19th century, you know, the church lost its way. People were, were not going to worship. We all know those figures from St. Paul's Cathedral for Easter Sunday in, in the early 19th mm. century. Uh, so both evangelicals and Anglo-Catholics were united in the passion of attempting to bring people into a better relationship with Jesus. That seems to me to be the same goal. They just disagreed vehemently against it. And I think that's how the devil gets to us. I think that is exactly how the devil attacks the church. Here you have two groups of people who are passionate about bringing people to know Jesus Christ. But instead of focusing on the fact that they both want people to know Jesus Christ, what they end up doing is burning each, quite literally burning each other's churches down because one of them has got candles and one of them has painted over the mural. That to me is, that is a spiritual battle that needs dealing with. Um, and that is what we are doing now, evangelicals and Anglo-Catholics uh, together. I just think it's brought into sharper focus by the fact that we have quite a large part of the Church of England that perhaps doesn't feel the same way. There's nothing like being both hated by the same people to draw people together. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it, really. So I hope that that's been of some use, my dear listener. Uh, there's been some use to, to you to try and understand something of the uh, coherence, the logic, the the drive, the passion, whatever you may say, of uh, the Anglo-Catholic uh, section of the Church of England. Those points of contact that we have and the fact that we are working together in ways that we have not seen before. And really, I don't want to say anything more than that because I think Matthew's probably ended it well. Let's not allow the devil to rip the church apart, but let's try and find our focus and our unity in Christ. If we start there, we could probably do a whole lot worse. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.